Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hello. What's up? Eric, hey. how are you? I'm great. It's great to have you. I was uh, just saying in the back room, in the green room, I feel like we're at Coachella. Uh, <laughs> a Burning Man goes, is going virtual. I wouldn't be surprised if, if Coachella uh, is as well. Well, everybody, we are, we are super excited and super lucky to have a longtime uh, a friend and collaborator, uh, Justin Kahn, to, uh, to join us for a, for a fireside chat for all of our village founders. Justin Kahn, of course, is the, the founder of Justin TV when he had the brilliant idea of putting a camera on his head and uh, live streaming his, uh, his fantastic life. And uh, that uh, eventually evolved into Twitch, which uh, was live streaming uh, games and became a uh, unicorn. Um, and then uh, started a number, uh, number of other companies, uh, most recently Atrium, which we'll, which we'll get into. Of course, was a partner at Y Combinator. And yeah, entrepreneur, investor, and renaissance man. Uh, Justin, uh, uh, thank you for joining us here today. Thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Awesome. Justin, the first thing I, w- I want to cover, and I want to go deep on with you uh, on here, is um, it seems over the last year, last year or two, you've really gone through a journey, uh, an emotional, spiritual, and uh, you know, mental health journey, and uh, an evolution in how you've approached these topics as, a, as an entrepreneur for yourself, but also uh, in your investments and how you recommend to others, and you've written quite a bit about it. Before getting into sort of the, the practical elements of it, why don't you just walk us through that journey and how that became to uh, to become so important to you? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. And I love talking about it. So uh, it started off, well, I started this new company, you know, Atrium. So after, you know, six years ago, we sold Twitch to Amazon. And then after that, I was a partner at Y Combinator for a couple of years. That's where you and I met when you were working on Product Hunt. And, you know, I felt like, oh, I had this big exit and then, sort of gnawed me and I was like, oh, I want to build a bigger company. You know, I had achieved more than we'd ever expected um, when we set out as founders, but I really, really wanted, I, I just kept wanting more, you know, and and um, I know it sounds ridiculous. It always seems ridiculous when somebody who is kind of at a, maybe a, a stage of success that's like a little further down the road says that, uh, but it's, it's really true. The hedonic treadmill is real and I, I wanted, I wanted more, and I had friends who had big com- you know, bigger companies, like Dropbox or Airbnb or whatever. And I was like, man, I could do that. And so uh, after a few years at YC, where you're more of like a coach, you're a professor, right? At, at teaching this big college class, basically. I was like, I want to be back in it and start something new. And so uh, in the most mercenary way possible, I came up with an idea that I thought could be really big, which was Atrium. It's kind of a um, you know, kind of full-stack corporate law firm idea. And it wasn't really my passion. Like I wasn't a lawyer. I wasn't somebody who was super passionate about that, but I thought it was a great business idea. And so I was like, okay, I can do this. And this will empower me to have this big company that I want and fulfill these needs that I think I have, or I did have, right. And I do have. And so what happened was I started this company and there was a lot of expectations. We raised a lot of money over the course of the company was like $75 million. And I was very stressed out about it Um, as anyone who, you know, I'm sure the, everybody in the audience has been at times with their startup, but I was, extremely stressed, you know, things were going well, sometimes things were going poorly, sometimes the same as, you know, always any company, but I was very stressed out and I was kind of wondering why, like the intellectual, the academic side of me, the, you know, kind of more, 
it was like sitting there and I was like, why am I so stressed? If I, even if this fails kind of objectively, I can go back to doing what I was doing before, which is being a partner at YC or an investor and like have a lot of resources and it'll be fine. But I didn't feel like that, right? I didn't feel like things would be fine. I felt like if I felt that if things didn't work out, it would be the end of the world again, which is exactly how I felt 10 years prior when I was starting Justin TV and, and, and Twitch. And that was very alarming to me, I guess, in a way, because it was like, I was very stressed out and I was like, this is not sustainable again. You know, I thought I was done with that part of, of uh, existence. And so, well, that kicked off a journey that started about two and a, a little over two years ago to, to really figure out why and, um, and really find salvation from those stresses. And that's kind of where all this originated. So there were a lot of things that really helped and were parts of the journey. I can dive into those. But, you know, one thing that really uh, helped was I, you know, I started meditating and I started, I just started as a way to like try to deal with the stress of every day. So, you know, using headspace, can I sit down for five minutes? And I was not someone who could sit for any length of time, you know, before I was someone who was, you know, always needed to keep my mind active and I'd be looking at my phone constantly. And so it was a really hard process for me, but, but through a bunch of tricks and to keep myself consistent, you know, I've been able to establish a practice and that really helped calm um, my mind and be okay with whatever my, you know, realize that I could be okay with and accept whatever the experience of what was happening in the world was at any given moment. So, you know, if I was in pain, I could accept that. If I was uh, having anxiety about the future of my startup, I could, I could accept that, you know? Yeah. And um, talk, talk more about med- meditation in terms of what, what you say to people who are skeptical or even just, you know, aren't making time for it, but, um, you know, you, you think they should, or, or what, what sort of your pitch to the people who are? Yeah. Well, for people, you know, like I was before uh, who are very skeptical and maybe, uh, you know, don't like the woo woo parts of meditate, the, you know, meditation or association with, you know, Eastern religion or philosophies. Um, I would just say, you know, it's, it's, if you, it's kind of like, it's self-care, right? It's like working out, like exercise has, you know, well-documented, positive effects on people's lives. And it's an investment. You might not like working. I never liked working out. Actually, I I was never into it. And I, um, but I, I found that by working out and putting that investment in, I just felt better every day and I was more productive, right? I could, you know, maybe, I don't think that's the more important part anymore, but at the time it seemed very important. I could like be more productive, add more energy. And meditation is the same thing for your mind, you know, by being calmer and being able to accept your experience of whatever's going on, you are more resilient and able to to deal with the stresses, the you know the the ups and downs of whatever happens every day, especially in a startup where there's like lots of downs, right? There's lots of things that seem like everything's going off off the rails and and uh, the world's ending. And before, I didn't have very good coping mechanisms to deal with those situations. I would get drunk and get completely hammered, or I would like not deal with it. I would just like not answer emails that I didn't want to deal with, or like shut completely shut down. You know, which is not productive. That's not a healthy way of dealing with your problems. And so by med- being able to be with my experience of, of whatever it was, I'm able to, you know, deal with those, my, my confront my problems head on. And I think that was a really important realization for me. And, and you gave up alcohol, right? Yeah. So I, I quit drinking. Talk about that drink. Yeah. So, um, you know, a year, year and a half ago, I, I quit drinking because I was one of those coping mechanisms that I used to escape my experience, right? I was not able to sit with the d- discomfort of like, I'd have a lot of anxiety over what was happening with the startup. I'm sure most of the audience has felt the same way at, at, at times, but I didn't have a way of like being with that experience of having anxiety. Like I'd feel like 
anxiety. I'd be like, I need this to stop. I got to get away from this. And so getting away involved, you know, there were many things from the unhealthy to the, to, you know, slightly more healthy to the very unhealthy, right? More healthy might be like taking a vacation, right? So I was doing a lot of that. Then there's like maybe a, um, you know, like I'm going to drown myself in Netflix or whatever to like, or you watch YouTube or I'd watch Twitch for like hours just to like get away from my, you know, monkey mind and, and the, the anxiety that I was feeling. Um, and then very unhealthy would be like just getting using alcohol, right? Like as a, as a numbing mechanism to not feel my emotional experience. And when I started to realize that I, you know, meditation helped, I could sit with it, but also, you know, at a conceptual level, I, I started to realize that the emotional experience that people have here and dealing with difficult emotions like sadness or anxiety or anger, you know, those, those emotions are just signals, you know, sensations and signals that you get as a human being, right? That's the the gift of being human is that you have these emotions, which are, you know, processing all this data from the outside world and creating this like complex, uh, taking on this complex data and then creating like a, like running it through your mental model and, and then coming up with a, you know, way that you feel, which is a signal. Like if you're angry, that's a feeling that something's wrong and you want to change the world, right? Uh, as it is. And that's not bad. It's not bad to be angry. Now you could, it could be bad how you, how that, how that anger plays out in the world, right? If you, if you manifest it in very unhealthy ways, but realizing that these, these difficult emotions weren't bad, they weren't negative and that I could be with them um, made me less interested in escaping from them. And so alcohol wasn't really serving me anymore. And, and that's when I kind of made the change. Yeah. The, the, the last thing I'll say about my dive into with my wellness journey is that I just experienced drinking ayahuasca for the first time a couple of years ago. And you know, I, if you haven't heard about ayahuasca, it's a psychedelic uh, plant medicine that uh, served in, in, or this comes from, originates in Central and South America. And it's horrible. Uh, you drink this foul tasting brew and spend the next six hours, like for me, it was like throwing up and kind of rocking back and forth in my own head, like screaming to myself. And immediately afterwards, I was like, why do people do that? This is, that was, that was the most stressed, like tough experience that I've ever had. It was, um, it was very, you know, I was like, I had these moments of like extreme distress all the way to like, and then moments of extreme calm as well. But one of the things that manifested for me was that I realized that, um, I, I started to learn about myself for the ne next year after I drank, uh, I started to learn all these things about myself and how my past experiences were informing my present behaviors, right? I was reliving all of these like experiences from when I was a kid that were formational experiences for me that now were manifesting in how I live my life today. So one example is, um, I realized in my ayahuasca, you know, night in my ceremony night, uh, my father appeared in front of me and he was, oh. I was screaming at him like, why, you know, I sold this billion dollar company. Why don't you approve of me? Right. And I was like, wow, I never realized I had that issue and, and how that manifested kind of through my life uh, as an adult was that I always want, you know, I realized I didn't get the approval of other people that I wanted when I was a kid. And so as an entrepreneur, I was just like really wanted to make it the, my drive to be successful and be, have this, you know, billion dollar company, multi-billion dollar companies or whatever. It was all from this desire to, you know, get the approval of my peers that, you know, I didn't feel like I had uh, been able to get when I was, uh, when I was a kid. And so that really, you know, opened my eyes to, how kind of some of these behaviors that were unconscious before were manifesting my adult life. And then from there I could realize not, Oh, I don't like this about myself or I want to, 
you know, but just that I understand it and I accept it and I can decide how I want to live in the world moving forward. And if I want that to rule me or not, you know, and so those were some of the big things that really made a difference to me. And then over the last couple of years, you know, yeah, you know, I actually never told you about this, but you know, one thing that you did that moved me a few years ago, even before you started Atrium, was this you you were doing uh, snaps every day, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm on the bicycle. Um, you did one over, you know, how if you don't love yourself now, you're not going to love yourself later, and so you know, you, you, you billion dollar company won't be enough, ten billion dollar company won't be enough, thirty billion dollar company won't be enough, and so I say it as sort of a segue as to how do you balance the the trade off between you know, there's this trope that you know only insecure people can build billion dollar companies or or you know if you're secure you you won't care um how, how do you balance the trade-off between sort of striving for more and and, and needing having that sort of real ambition to be something that you aren't currently but also having that sort of sense of, of self self-acceptance how, how do you think about that i that is a good question and i don't think i know the answer because when i was working at atrium and i was becoming calmer and more conscious and comfortable with myself, people would ask me that. And, um, I had one friend, I won't, I won't tell you who it is, but you know, he's $25 billion company. And he's like, that's my edge. You know, my edge is to, is that I'm like, I, I have this drive to win and I'm like going to win at all costs, no matter what. And I'm like, yeah, I do torture myself over it. And I do think that that certain, you know, that helps in some ways for some people that can help you be successful for me. It helped a lot. Like I, uh, definitely think that, you know, in a way, some of the diff, you know, my, my reactions and models for, that I've formed from difficult experiences and the desire to seek approval did drive me to like be very, uh, very successful. I, I do think that helped a, a lot in, in some ways. And, and I do also think that if I was more comfortable with who I was and less graspy, I would have been more successful in the past. In, in other, you know, in, in Twitch is a good example because with Twitch, my co-founder was, it was really his idea, Emmett, Emmett's idea. And he, we were pivoting the company to it, he, you know, after a year he was running it. And the ego part of me was like, man, I should, I'm not that needed here. I should go do something else. So I, was, I went and started another company and I was still involved with Twitch was, you know, uh, basically a board member and, and kind of um, at that point, I wasn't playing an active role. And had I stuck around, I think, we, you know, I, I still was a really good partner to Emmett and I, I probably could have done some of the things that he maybe didn't like to do as well. Um, maybe a little bit better, you know, I'm a great fundraiser. So I, maybe I could have helped on that side and we could have gone farther as an independent company, you know? So I, I do think that my own impatience and willing, you know, desire to, you know, get more right then uh, really was positive in some ways for, for being successful and also negative in some ways for, for limiting my success. I want to get into some of the deeper elements of, of company building here and, and use this as sort of a segue for, for how it relates to that. And let, let's get into the Atrium journey uh, a bit. How, how did you decide to, to pull the plug when you still had so much money in, in the bank and how should entrepreneurs be, be thinking about that? And then I want to, let's get into just some of the biggest learnings uh, and lessons learned and things you would have done differently practically um, in, in that experience. Yeah. So, so, well, we had 25 million, we had 25 million in the bank, actually more than that when we decided to pull the plug. And the answer was just, you know, the, the, there was the startup founder in me, which is like, fuck, just keep going, whatever, figure it out. And then there's the like investor in me and the investor in me is like, I would, wouldn't invest my own money in this company right now. So how can I like be, continue spending my investors money? Because this is not a venture scale business. This is what I think, you know, 
basically applies to a lot of full stack companies. It's a um, money that, you know, business that venture money is fueling, but doesn't have like a core. There's not, hasn't been like a real technology change that is, should drive like a 10 X better experience, you know? And so that was my, uh, and I feel like that's manifested itself in a lot of companies that have had difficulties. You know, I don't have to go through and like name them all, but like uh, that I've been doing the full stack business in the last six months. So um, to me, that was just, you know, that's, that's what it came down to. And I just didn't believe it was a good use of capital. And so while it was hard and uh, you know, we did end up laying off a large number of people um, I felt like doing the fire drill of having everybody work for another year on something that wouldn't make sense and having to do it in a year and what that I didn't believe would be successful just yeah. did, it wasn't worth it. Right. Even for the employees that we were laying off, I was like, you're better off spending a, a year. It's hard now, but you, you'll, they'll be better off spending a year working at a different company that maybe has more successful prospects. So that, that was how we made the decision, you know, and um, in terms of lessons learned, I mean, there's infinite, um, I actually made a list for myself. Also not infinite. There's a finite list that I made for myself and, uh, there are, there are many, there's like that made a set for myself and then a set about the company. I mean, for myself, it's just like, I knew I should have, well, I didn't know then, but I, I should have worked on, you know, on something where I was intrinsically motivated working on something where there was ex, you know, it was purely extrinsic motivation is not, not a healthy thing to do. I think, you know, you can't skip the product market development phase. Like money does not help you find product market fit. Like you need to like actually get there, talk to your customers starting slow. I actually think, starting slow to go fast later, you know, I always wanted to go fast and just be a big company, but you skipping that early stage, I think was like very not good in the, the end of it. Obviously hiring tons of people. That's hundred people. We were 180 people hiring lots of people is not a good way to create a nimble company, right? Like you should, I mean, I think it's like, if I start a new company, I would want to have as few people as possible, you know? Um, whereas I think that, I was like so obsessed with building the cargo halt of a big company really quickly that I kind of skipped a lot of early steps. And I was like, because I'm a second time founder and I have all these resources, I can afford to skip those steps. And I don't think that that's very doable um, anymore. And so, yeah, those are some of the big lessons. What else on sort of organization building or, or, um, or hiring um, or, or even scaling besides going, going slower or, or lessons you either picked up from this experience or, or other experiences that you make sure to counsel uh, your, your CEOs? You know, it's so situation specific. It's hard to give like a general rules, but I thought some, yeah. one of your frameworks is have a second act for, for example, as a CEO. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think there's a transition apparent. I, I actually don't think Atrium was, I think I was trying to get to that point at Atrium way before we actually deserve to. So, that was that was one problem actually, but you know the second act idea with founders in general is that you know eventually your your role transitions from being the product leader of one thing to building a machine that builds a machine, right? And um, building an organization that will continue innovating and growing and creating over time. I was trying to do the latter before I had like a product that really was a ten x, right? So you have to go through the phases, and um, I think that's really important. But for the, those founders who are at the you know, company size that's, I mean, and really this kicks in when you're like a thousand people maybe, or like maybe like 500 to a thousand. So like probably most, I don't know what the level of founders in the audience is, but it does not apply to most people, but you know, eventually you will have to transition and give up direct control over your, you know, the, the decisions in your, you know, your app or product or whatever it is and uh, work more on building the, the machine. 
and hiring the organization and, and um, figuring out how to can kind of create a culture of innovation. And that's, you know, that's something a lot of people struggle with. I had the opposite problem. I was trying to do that from day one and not like worrying about like building a great product. Yeah. And you mentioned go slow to go fast as it relates to hiring. How do you know whether you're going at the right, right speed? Well, I think if you always feel like you're behind on hiring, that's good. I think that's right. I think you, you want to feel like you're very, and if you don't relax your standards, that's really good. I think companies get into problems where they hire because they need someone and they are willing to take anybody. And that's how the, like, that's how the, the decline starts to happen. You know? Yeah. What's your philosophy uh, behind culture and, and, and building culture and, and making sure the culture, you know, remains strong as you, as you evolve? Yeah. So I think, I think a couple things about that because I thought about culture a lot at Atrium, but it didn't matter at the end of the day. Right. I feel like a lot of people there will say Atrium had a great culture in a bunch of ways, but we didn't succeed as a company. So it's almost a prerequisite that you actually, you know, that it work. I mean, you can overfocus. I think I like overfocused on culture in a, in, a, in, a, in a way, but the the other thing that I think was a mistake was focusing, like the culture has to fit the type of company it is. Like I was trying to run this book called the 15 commitments of conscious leadership. And that's an amazing book that described the type of conscious culture that I actually want to work at. Unfortunately, I don't think a operationally intensive company that is trying to squeeze out like, you know, bits on margin is it's very hard to run that way. Maybe it's possible, but I don't know if I could have run it that way. And I don't think the type of people with the type of background that were coming to Atrium were fully embracing working at that kind of company in their, at their highest capacity. And so to me, it's like your culture has to fit your company. Like if you're a high margin software business, like Asana, you can have a awesome conscious culture because kind of the business and the way the business runs, maybe it's a little bit more uh, conducive to it. So I, I feel like in a way I was trying to run a company with one culture that really required a leader with a different type of, um, who's going to run a business in a different way. And I think that was a problem. Yeah. And how do you think about managing your own psychology or the, the broader concept of sort of bring your whole self to work? How do you, you know, sometimes you're, you know, you have to put on a face. Sometimes you're going through something. How, how do you think about that as the CEO in terms of, you know, how much do you show versus how much not to show or, you well, know, in terms of I, I, I think I'm pro authenticity. I'm like a fairly authentic person. I'm pretty open. I mean, I just talked to a bunch of strangers about drinking ayahuasca. Like, <laughs> I think it's important to be authentic and open. And so for me, one of the things I like to model at work and in my life is just to be honest and open about my emotions. So if I'm feeling upset, I'll say, oh, I'm feeling anger right now. And and in the context of being CEO, it's not your fault. You're not doing anything wrong. You didn't make me angry. I, that anger is just a signal that I feel like something's wrong in this situation. And I want to explain why I'm feeling, you know, I think that is. And so to me, that was, you know, that was something that really eased my communication at work, um, especially since before I was a very command and control micromanager and kind of upset per, like impatient and ups, upset if anything was going wrong i'd be like not screaming about it but like really stewing about anything that was you know the smallest thing that was going wrong and i wasn't in touch with my emotional experience and able to communicate that so it would manifest to the team as like oh my god that guy's fucking scary it's horrible you know he's he's like a you know a, a dictator or whatever they thought they were working for saddam hussein or something <laughs> so you know i think that being able to share my emotional experience with my, my team was it made me more, much more of a human being to them and much more relatable and like much more pleasant to work with. Yeah. You, you, you wrote a blog post called the founder's guide to emotions. 
and you also wrote, um, you know, about your, your routine separately, you know, the, the five minute journal, the seven minute workout, the 10 minute yeah. meditation. meditation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk about the sort of like practical daily routines that, that you recommend uh, a founder should have or have something like that. And then we can get into you know, how that relates to sort of the founder's guide to, to motions. Yeah. So, so I, things that I found, so once I started doing like meditation, I was like, and seeing benefits and I was like, oh, I need to do, I want to do more. Like what else can I, so you know, 10 years ago, I thought you couldn't form new habits. <laughs> you know, I thought that people were kind of baked as they were when they became 18 or whatever, they became an adult. And there's like very hard to change who you were. It's who you were was based on like your genetics and how you grew up or whatever. And after I started meditating, I realized I could meditate every day. And I, I the practice was like kind of making me better in a lot of ways and my experience better. I was like, oh, I'm interested in learning more about what can I do to make my experience better. And people who know me know that once I'm into something, I'm like a thousand percent into it. If I get into something, I'm like all about it. So I got into this self-improvement kick and I just started trying everything. So that's what led to quitting drinking, the meditation. I meditate every day for the last 550 days. The, the uh, exercise, I started saying, I'm going to exercise every day, even if it's just for five minutes. And I do, I exercise every day on average, it's probably 30 minutes, something like that. Um, a mix of things, yoga you know, uh, the cardio weightlifting. And that was a big one for me. Really. I can tell my mood, you know, I track my mood and my mood is just much better after I exercise. I started drinking only decaf coffee because I've noticed coffee would generate anxiety for me, especially if, you know, I, I like coffee a lot. So I drink a, a couple cups in the afternoon and quit that. And I just only drink decaf, but I can drink as much as I want. I, uh, started doing the gratitude journal. So, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to, to five minute journal about two years ago. And, every day since then I've, I've done this gratitude journal. At first I was very skeptical. You know, I was like, what's that going to do? You know, writing down what you're thankful for. But after a week, you know, I figured it was only five minutes a day, one week's investment. That's only 35 minutes. I could try it. Right. So I, I did it. And I, I was like, Oh, I actually do feel better and more connected with the people around me with this very simple exercise. So I, I've been doing that. I do this practice where I think about the net, like a negative thing happening to me, like I visualize a negative oftentimes. So like, I don't know, getting, you know, having a, you know, health problem or some sort of tragedy happening or whatever. And it, I really try to visualize it in as potent of a visualization as possible. And then it's almost like an, a vaccine or inoculation to like the ups and downs of, of or the downs that happen throughout your day, you know, cause you will experience the difficulty no matter who you are and, and what your circumstances. And so, um, those are some of the things, you know, I can tell they're working because, not just like on a daily basis, I feel, you know, happier and, and more peaceful in my life, but I had this pretty bad accident about eight months ago. I went head over head on my bike and, uh, my, uh, my uh, road bike and I broke both my elbows, just bam, landed like that. And I was kind of incapacitated for, for a couple of days. I couldn't use either arm. Actually, my, my left arm was really bad. My right arm was, was just a kind of minor break. It turns out, but I couldn't use either arm and my wife was you know, pulling up my pants and feeding me, just cut my food and like, you know, literally putting a fork in my mouth. And I asked myself every, every day after I had the accident, would I change things? Like, would I change how, or do I wish this didn't happen? And the answer was always no. I, I was much more at peace with the experience than I thought I would, would ever be. And I really think, I think that's due to meditation and to the stoic practice of this negative visualization. Cause I'd already imagined terrible things happening to me. I was kind of like, uh, it's part of life. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Speaking of, of part of life, 
it's a challenging time to be a CEO, uh, you know, the last last few months uh, to be a leader, right? We have COVID uh, and, and teams are going remote. We have pro- protests th- throughout the country and, and people who feel re- really pa- passionate about that over, over the past cu- couple months. You know, you, you, you've written separate blog posts about, you know, founder communication and, and communications, everything, especially as your team scales and how to write great, great all hands. I'm curious for just your, your general advice on, on founder uh, communication on CEO communication to your company and, and how to do that well in any frameworks for that, but then also how to do that well in sort of times of, of great uncertainty um, from, you know, variety of things that are, that are going across the world. And how, if you were still running Atrium today, how you'd be thinking about that at, at your company? Well, I mean, I guess a couple of thoughts that are probably not that coherent on this. Uh, the number one thing is I think you need to think of like, it's about t- spending time on it. I feel like the best leaders I know spend a lot of time on their communication to their teams. They're writing letters on Sunday, like a weekly letter to their their team, or they're you know getting feedback on their team communications from people inside, you know, their management comp- team and their company, but also people ex- externally, their, their friends who are CEOs. And I see them investing a lot of time. And I think that's really critically important. The second thing I think is that just really being clear about what your values are as a company, I think is really important. I think people are looking for leadership, like especially employees, especially younger millennial employees. They're looking for out, they see what's going on in the world and they're not happy with it. And they're looking for outlets. And one of the ways that they feel that they can drive change, which is probably not wrong, is within the company that they work for, right? The younger workforce is the thing that powers Silicon Valley right? Like Silicon Valley is, is power. Like if you're running a digital business, uh, you know, software business, your cost of goods, right? Your supply chain is your workforce, your engineering workforce, your designers, your salespeople. And um, so the, that workforce has real power to affect change in their companies. And they know that there's some people are starting to realize that. So I think as a CEO, it's really important that you be clear about your values and communicating, whether they're aligned with, you know, current outside, uh, I would say, you know, external trends that are happening or, or, or not, right. Because people are going to expect you to be, you know, they're, they're going to see your company as an outlet uh, for some of those, um, you know, the social change they want to see. And I feel like people get into trouble from I've, what I've observed with friends of mine or whatever, going through this, they get, they're getting into trouble where they're not clear or they change over time. They're not, you know, it's kind of like, they're just doing whatever will appease whoever's loudest at that moment but they don't have a clear set of values that they're defining themselves for where they stand on, you know, everything in the world, but also like these specific external, um, uh, you know, external movements. And I, I think that's, it's just important to, to do that up front, and it will save you a lot of pain. Even if there's people in your company who disagree with you now and want the company to take stronger stances on X, Y, or Z things, I think just being clear is going to save you a lot of pain in, in the future because what you see happening is like, it becomes a debate, right? Like where, you know, employees are like, this company should do this. And then the founders are like, okay, they kind of like resist. And then they like give in a little bit, but then it's not good enough. And it just becomes this ongoing, like energy suck in the company. And I think it's just much more important to be clear about it. Yeah. You talked about the the habits earlier that the founders, the routines, how, how do you think about the, the infrastructure that one should have, whether it's, you know, regular meeting with a coach or sort of regular meeting with peer founders or other just sort of infrastructure that you think founders should, should build it or CEOs should build into, into their professional life and personal life. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm, I'm a member of a number of groups of founders and I find that to be really helpful to have like a private forum where, you know, the same people over time where you can get, you know, bounce your ideas and problems off of them in a very honest, unfiltered way. I think that's really critical 
Um, I think having a therapist really helped, uh, you know, having, I had a coaches, having coaches really helps if you can get, um, some, someone who's a really, you know, kind of strong coach is going to tell you how it is, uh, someone that you respect. Um, I think those are all really critical things. You know? how, how do you make the most out of the therapist sessions or, or the coaching sessions? Uh, with coaching, you know, I worked with, uh, uh my coach was uh, this guy, Matt Mochari, who's the coach of a lot of amazing companies. Um, you know, Lambda School, Coinbase, Flexboard, Reddit. And uh, he just, you know, has no filter and will tell you how it is and also really, really hold you accountable to everything you say. And that was like super valuable to me. And then with therapists, I mean, I, for me, I think I get the most when I'm just really honest and authentic about my experience. And, and that's what's always helped the most. Yeah. A lot of companies here are, are, are growing and, 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 and some of them are scaling. How do you think about avoiding politics in, 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 in your company as you grow? And just setting not not just CEO communication, but great communication within within the company, and just overall a healthy healthy dynamic. Yeah. So I think the number one lesson I learned you know, from Atrium was like you have to create that first team. That's the most important thing to avoid politics. Um, uh, and what I mean by that is I used like I created the first part of Atrium. Like I really created an environment where people wanted to impress me, and so it was very political. Actually, it was kind of like Game of Thrones, and I did it unconsciously because like by the way I was communicating because of like who I was, whatever people were like, Oh, I want to impress Justin and they wouldn't work together. And when it was really about turning that management layer into like a team where it's like, we are actually like, feel like a team, like a sports team or something like your head of sales, your head of engineering, your head of product, you, your, you know, and your head of marketing or whatever, that's like a team, like more than when, when you ask most leaders, like, who's your team? Like if I asked your head of marketing, you know, a head of marketing at one of these portfolio companies, who's your, Who's your team? They'll probably say, "Oh, it's my direct reports, right? It's my section of the company." But really, the team of the company, the first team, should be um, the the executive team layer of the company, and that executive layer should be more honest and trust the other people in that ex- executive layer more than they do with the rest of their organizations. And and that is not the case in most companies. But the key to avoiding politics is to create that first team. And to you know, how do you do it? It's like how you create any other team. You spend time together, create vulnerability exercise where people trust each other. You could go through various types of experiences t- together that, you know, if you go through any sort of like emotional, ang- you know, inducing ang- experience, you, you become bonded. You know, it's just, there's no, there's no, it's not a light switch. Yeah. You got to put in the work. Yeah. T- team ayahuasca sessions, which you all have yeah. under your chairs. If you, if you look, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, uh, how do you think about the trade-off between, promoting people from within versus bringing people uh, externally and then more broadly, just career development for, for, for your employees. I don't, I'm not the right person to ask about that, but I mean, I'll try my best to answer, but like in terms of career development, I, I do think people want to know that you're invested in them as a company, you know, especially younger workforce, they want to know you're invested in them. Um, the average tenure in Silicon Valley is like a year now. It's like, it's very low. And so, people are switching companies because they think they can get a better opportunity elsewhere. Right. And, and I think that the salve to that in a way is to make people understand that you're invested in them um, in terms of developing versus hiring, you know, it really depends on the situation. I think that like sometimes a company's growing too fast where they have to hire, you know, from, from outside. And I think that's really important. A lot of companies I see flounder because even though they're great companies with great culture with founders who are very passionate, they get stalled because they aren't hiring enough from outside when they're, when they get to be a, a pretty sizable company, you know? And so 
the answer is not always just promoting within. It's not always us hiring outside. Obviously, there's tons of cases where people hire outside leaders and it's just the wrong culture fit or they don't have the context uh, and it, it's a disaster. Yeah. I want to talk about found, founder burnout or just founder like disenchantment with, with, the, with, with the company. And how do you sort of renew that? You know, you talked about the habits in terms of personal health, but in terms of like specific excitement over, over what you're working on within the company or, or just where the company is going, how, how do you think about sort of renewing, you know, excitement and, and, and passion for, 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 for that, but also making sure that you're working on the right thing as, as the CEO? Yeah. So I, I think it's, there's this exercise in the conscious leadership coaching you know, content. That's the zone of genius exercise. So most founders I know end up in their zone of excellence, which is the things they're good at, but they don't necessarily get energy from doing. So they're like, you know, they are doing the sales because they're good at it, or they're managing the entire team because they're, they're good. And they're the smart people. They learn how to manage, they figure it out, but if they're slowly being trained because they're doing a bunch of shit, they don't like to do. Whereas when the beginning of the company, they probably were starting this company doing the things they, they love doing, or at least some of them. And the alternative to that is figuring out how to live in your zone of genius, which is the things that you love doing that give you energy. Right. And there's a bunch of things you can do, you know, like a calendar audit to figure out like what in your day gave you energy and what took away energy. And then just try to outsource or outsource or insource or have someone else do all the things that are like, you know, took away energy from you. I, I think that's really important. I think a lot of founders are trapped by, and this is true, actually a lot of people in general, but founders specifically are trapped by their concept of what is supposed to happen. Right. So founders like, oh, a CEO is supposed to manage every, you know, executive leader, executive team member at our, our company. Yeah, the CEO is supposed to, you know, sign these major contracts, work on these major contracts. So the CEO is supposed to prepare all the board information and present to the board. But actually a CEO is not supposed to do anything. Or like you can just rethink everything from 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 first principles for your own context, right? You're not going to do anything except increase the valuation of your company and grow your grow your business. Like if you have other people who can do any of those specific things that you have this preconceived notion that you should be doing, then you could have those people do them and focus on what your special strength is, the thing that gives you energy, right? And I, I strongly encourage like lots of friends of mine to, if you don't like doing it, figure out how to get someone else to do it. And hopefully someone who for whom that task is in their zone of genius, you know? And what's the best way to develop that, that self-awareness uh, or, or to become more self-aware of one's true you know, zone, zone of genius? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, I think a calendar audit is a really great exercise where you're like going through, you print out your calendar for the last four weeks and then just circle in, you get two pen, colored pens, you know, red and blue and everything that gave you energy circle in blue, everything that took away energy circle in red and everything that's in red, figure out how to not do it or to change it in some way that it will be blue. Yeah, totally. You, you've mentioned uh, conscious leadership a, a couple of times and I'm, I'm curious if you can uh, go deeper on it and unpack just some of the biggest lessons you, you've taken from it or some of the biggest principles that you take uh, in, in, in your uh, you know, CEO development. Yeah. So I, I think I talked about one already, which was um, the emotional uh, side, which is being honest and uh, being in touch with your emotions and being able to honestly communicate them to the people around you. The, the other two kind of major things for me were uh, taking hundred percent responsibility. So it's going to sound counterintuitive, but as a CEO, I often felt like I had, no agency in my life. I was like, I'm just, I'm in this situation and the world is doing it to me. And really when I changed the context and was able to say like for these first situations, Oh, I am, I put myself in this situation. I started this company and I have hired 180 people and now I've got to lay off a shit ton of people. But like, it could be like, Oh, you could see that as like things are happening to me. Like the market didn't accept it. 
like I, you know, the people didn't, inside didn't cooperate, they didn't build a good enough business, whatever. Or I could say, here's all the ways that I created this situation for myself. And the ironic thing is when you, or the, the, the counterintuitive thing is when you, when you have agency, when you feel like you have agency, that you feel a lot better about what is going on in your life. A uh, second thing for me was like curiosity over reactivity. I was a very reactive person. And in a lot of ways that served me. And I was like, okay, what has to be done to fix whatever problems it is so we can get to the next order of magnitude for our business. And I just knock off things like of things to do. But the problem with that was I was never like, I wasn't able to, I wasn't approaching things with like a curious mindset of like, how can I learn from this situation? And so when I was in a lot of these situations, not happy, you know, and, and by kind of flipping the script and saying like, how can I, what can I learn from this? Yeah, I just find myself like much more engaged and happy with life in general. You know, it doesn't even, it's not just startups. It's like going through my daily life. I have to, I don't know, drive to the, you know, somewhere to pick something up. And normally I'd be like, oh, I don't want to do an errand or whatever. But when I look at it, like, oh, I get a chance to get, go like, see somebody at this place and like learn something from them. Like, you know, I'm stuck waiting in an airport. Um, I, that could be happening to me and I could be reactive about it. And, or I could have the mindset of like, what can I learn from the people I'm stuck with? And like, who I can just talk to and maybe make a different human connection. You know? So for me, that was like a completely new way of thinking that, that really changed my experience. Yeah. You're undoubtedly going to start another company. Uh, I'm, I, not, I'm not. <laughs> okay. Let's say, let's say if you were, what, what are lessons, uh, other things that you would do differently? You mentioned some of them go slow to go fast nail the the initial product uh you know maybe don't do something in full full stack full stack services and raise a ton of venture venture money what what else would you do differently in terms of the company building function or or where else do you think you you need to grow or uh, as a ceo well i guess i'll just tell you i guess what i am doing which is so um i did start working you know i love working on new things and i love ideas and and actually for a while i was trying to say okay i want to just try to suppress or, or, or I guess get, let go of that part of myself. But I realized that, no, I should accept that part too. You know, and I, I do love that part. And so um, I started working on this, this new app. It's uh, but it's not a company, right. But it, I think about, you know, I, because of my background, I can't help but thinking about how it, in a lot of the ways that I think about companies. So, you know, this app is a habit tracker uh, to help people adopt social, you know, habit, healthy habits like meditation and exercise and share them with friends so that they can, um, they can, uh, you know, it creates a social reinforcement to help you hold you accountable, right? So you can kind of like create a group around meditation, like you create a village global group, and then everybody would check in and you could kind of see and help each other with encouragement over time to adopt these habits. And I just want to create something that was, you know, based out of love and, and something that I really wanted to use, you know, it's kind of the app that I wanted. And for the first time ever, you know, I'd never really worked on something that I really wanted myself. I'd always worked on just ideas that I thought would be interesting and cool or could make money or whatever. And so I've been building this app with a couple of friends of mine. And um, we, uh, you know, I'm, I'm tr- it's almost exactly the opposite of Atrium. It's like, I want, I want to raise no money. It's not a company. It's not a company. It's just a fun project. And I want to not announce it. I haven't announced it to anyone, you know, I'm just, like publicly or anything like that. I don't want to not announce it. I just want to work on it for my own intrinsic, you know, because it's intrinsically fun for me. And I want to, you know, like if we hire people, I only want to see people or we're not going to hire anyone because we're not a company. But if we, as we bring on volunteer friends of ours to help on this project, I only want to work with people who, when I see them, it puts a smile on my face. Like I actually want to see these people, not people like that's like the, that's a a non-negotiable qualification. 
And, you know, if it ever does work and become something that's maybe more of a business, I wouldn't call it a startup, but maybe like a business that like could pay people to like continue work on it. I would, you know, consider doing, making it more of like a, you know, like a rev share business or like a life, I guess a lifestyle business might be what people would call it. and not a startup because I feel like the, you know, the way I, people, especially in Silicon Valley, think about startups is like, you know, you have to, it's a desk, it's a, it's about getting to a destination. You're trying to sell a company and or whatever. It's, it's not necessarily about that, the journey. I don't know. That's just where I'm at in life right now. Yeah, t- totally. You know, one, one thing I've noticed uh, about you is that you get excited about something early and then other people you know, get excited about, about, about it. So, so um, you, you spot trends and, 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 and <laughs> um, you know, the camera on the head and this, you know, live streaming via snap and mental health. And, and one trend I, I sort of just notice externally from, from your tweets and you don't get too into it, but it broadly like, around free speech and, and fr- freedom of thought and sort of universalism and independent thinking. And I, I guess I'm curious if there's anything worth sharing about in terms of what moves you there, how that relates to, you know, in, in CEOs, you have, in company building, you have to be able to, you know, have real real conversations with people and where you expect to go with that, if at all, or, or just what's interesting to you about, about that topic. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess starting with what's concerning, right? I think that there is a global trend. This isn't just in the United States. I have a a global illiberal trend. Like a lot of the liberal ideals that are, you know, the foundation of Western government and uh, Western politics, the younger people in these countries, including the United States, are are less committed to those ideals today than ever than they have in in a long time. And um, to me, that's very alarming because I think that obviously the United States has a lot of problems. Like we're in the middle of a huge amount of problems and it's not a, a perfect implementation of the ideals of liberalism, but there, that doesn't mean like the ideal is bad, right? Like we should strive to get closer to the ideal every day, not just throw out what the goal, you know, the, say the, like the goalposts were, were the wrong ones or the goals are the, the wrong one. And I worry that the conversation is more in that direction. And so uh, things like, you know, people should be able to have an unfiltered conversation of ideas, even ones that are challenging or touch on difficult subjects. I, I think that's just really important. And it's important micro at the micro level in Silicon Valley. If you're starting a company, you know, you, you don't want to have ideas you can't discuss. Like, you, I mean, there's so many examples from my own career, but just like the having the core premise of your product not be working and then just iterating like a b tests but not being able to actually say as a company like is this uh, were our core assumptions wrong like i've been there and not asked those questions and then gone down you know wasted more and more time on and i think having a culture where you can actually have a free discussion of ideas is is incredibly important and i feel that that is people's interest in supporting that culture in the west and in america is eroding because they are finding so much dissatisfaction at various points of our like institutions. Right. And, and I think that's, that's a problem. I don't know what the solution is, but that's a huge problem. How do you think about that within the company itself in terms of making sure that sort of people aren't as high up feel empowered to go to the CEO directly if they need to, or how do you think about sort of levels uh, of, of communication and sort of you know, creating, um, you know, precedents or frameworks for, for how to, think about it. Yeah. So I, I think practically when you're, when you're in a company, you know, you want to be doing a lot of things. You want to be doing skip levels, regular skip levels, where you're doing a round table without the manage, managers for, you know, and talking and just understanding what people think about the company, what's wrong with the company, what could be doing better, what, what's doing, 
being done well. It's like feedback. Like you would get feedback from your users. You want to get on field filtered feedback from your employees, you know, and then there's all sorts of other things like engagement surveys. And uh, well, I mean, I guess that's not a way that people feel comfortable coming to you. I mean, for me, I felt like to try to just talk to people in the company. And I I think there's always, it's always going to be hard to create that. So like what I found for myself was there were some people in the company I could really have a personal relationship with at different levels. And I would just try to cultivate that personal relationship and then talk to that person and use them as like a benchmark for kind of the sentiment of the company in general. And, you know, have them encourage other people to be like, Oh, you know, Justin's a normal guy. You can just go talk to him. Now, sometimes that works, sometimes that didn't, but you know, that, that was the best I could do. Yeah. And, and what about just frameworks for thinking about organizational structure in general, in terms of who reports to who, or when you change that, how, how to change that and how to message it and, how, how do you think about that? Uh, that? That's like a, such a tactical question. I, I'm like, you know, I, I feel like you want to, I, I think that's hard to answer in this kind of context. because It's so context specific, right? Like it's so specific depending on like what people's various expectations are, where, when they came in, what their expectations are now, oftentimes it's going to lead to transitions because people aren't going to be happy if you make organizational changes. And that's just like, I don't, I don't think I have, solve that problem in any way. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like when you get to this, the be, the best advice I can offer, I guess, is like when you come to this position where you're thinking like, I need to layer this person or I need to change the organizational structure, or whatever, you should go talk to people who have done it before and figure out what do they do well and what do they do wrong? Yeah. And how about when you're, you mentioned unhappy employee, when you have someone really good, but they're just, they're unhappy they're and, and it's rubbing off on other teammates or, or they're not, not doing their, their best work. What have you seen as the best tactic to sort of get them on the right track or identify whether they can't be, you know, put them on the right track, no matter how talented they are and, uh, and get them out accordingly. Pay them to quit. So like what I mean is you should, oftentimes if someone is, was good or you like them, they're a personal friend or whatever, they used to be good. They used to have a good attitude. Maybe they're still probably, they're probably very talented. You're going to feel guilty. You're going to say, Oh, I, this, this person could come back or I like them or whatever you should just pay them whatever severance or whatever arrangement will get them out the door while you still feel good about your relationship because people who are negative are a energy suck on your entire team. It's not their fault, right? They're, they're almost certainly going to be happier in a different job. Actually, if they're, they're actively negative and you feel that they're actively negative, you're actually doing them a favor in a way because they're going to go find a different job that they're going to be happier at. And, but you doesn't feel like that at the time. And so it's, it's just really important to like not let these situations fester. And so my advice is always just like pay whatever severance it's going to take for you to be, feel good about it. Be like, have an conversation. I write it out beforehand and I go to them and I'm almost like reading off the script because otherwise I don't, I don't want to soft pedal it or anything. But I'm like, look, you don't seem happy. And I'm not saying that's your fault and, and I'm not accusing you. But I, for me, it's like when I don't, I don't want to create a, I don't want to work at a situation where I don't want to create a workplace where people feel like I'm torturing them every day, right? Like that's not my aspiration and I don't feel good about that. So how can we solve this, this problem? Like, here's some, here's the options. Like you can become happy. And then if that's the case, they want to go down, then we go through a specific timeline where they guarantee to do that. Or you maybe should find another job and here's how I can support you in doing that. I can, give you severance. I can help you find your, find another job where you'll be happier. And I like, I will use my resources to do that. And I've had that conversation with people and then we parted on good terms and then they were gone. And my problem, you know, is it was, it, it all worked out, you know, and they felt good about it because they didn't want to be there. Totally. I, I want to use uh, Rachel Craig's question. 
for the full stack companies that are successful, I guess what separates the ones that are successful from the ones that that aren't, or, or the ones that that make, what are the tips and tricks that they should be thinking about? What are the ones that are successful? <laughs> uh, the, the the full stack companies. Do you call it DoorDash? I, I don't know. Uh, uh, okay, Door, DoorDash, DoorDash, and Uber, right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, I think having a very simple product, right? I think having a product that's simple and repeatable is super important. I think a lot of you know, Atrium was a very complex product. And I think the hard part is with a very complex product, it's hard to find efficiency gains in software or in process, like process, right? And that's why people pay like experts to do this stuff. So I feel like the simplicity of the of the product is is uh, super important um, in order to make it scale. On on reach, uh, so you've taken some time off to, to recharge. I don't want you to ex- explain your whole recharging journey because it makes, makes some founders jealous who are, who are working dutifully hard. But what, just as a founder, as CEOs, you mentioned some of the habits you do d- differently. Are, are there, or, or routinely, what are the best recharging, like bang for your buck uh, experiences or, or things that you'd recommend founders think about to make sure that they are recharged, to make sure that they have, you know, perspective can, can be reflecting accordingly in addition to the, the gratitude journal? Were there certain certain types of trips or certain places that that you went as a CEO that you'd recommend? Uh, well, because it was kind of happened, we, we shut down the company right before coronavirus. I didn't go anywhere. I do think uh, doing like a meditation retreat is, is a worthwhile thing to do um, or any sort of like retreat where you're in solitude. I used to take a lot of vacations that were distractions where I would be like getting outside of myself and like, you know, going to, I don't know, party somewhere or whatever. But I think actually something where you just, I took one one vacation. I remember a long time ago, like over 10 years ago. Um, and I was very stressed with Justin TV and I just, I, I left my phone and I went to uh, Whistler in the summer for four days and I just was by myself and I, it was a very nice time to reflect about what I valued and what I care about. And um, so I just think going somewhere by yourself is, is, is pretty, is a good thing to do. I don't know for my, you know, what did I do? Like the last couple of months, I read the entire wheel of time series, like just in a row, you know, it's like 14,000 pages, something like that. And that was, uh, that was something. What, what is it? The Wheel of Time. It's, yeah. a, it's the most epic fantasy series ever created. It's, it's like a huge, like 14 volume fantasy series that kind of started off in the early 90s. And the guy was writing them all the way for like 20 years. Yeah. And for, for, for founders who do a, a meditation retreat, whether it's one day or three days or, or longer, what, 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 what can they expect or what, what is that experience like? Or when you take solitude time, what are you doing during, during that time? I mean, I, I think one big part of it is just being more conscious of what is going on in your experience. And like, we're so caught up in the abstraction layers that we've created in society of like, you know, jobs and worries about, I don't know, work that you're doing or working on or projects or whatever, that you're really not getting down to these like lower levels of consciousness and understanding like, what is my experience? Like, oh, I feel these sensations. I am thinking thoughts. I'm hungry. I'm having these emotions. I feel these emotional, this emotional content or perceptions in my body and just having that level of consciousness and, and, and practicing being at that level of consciousness, you know, without judgment, I guess, without the value judgment that we often apply to our entire experience, like, Oh, I have this pain. It's bad. I need to change it right now. And you're not thinking about anything except like getting out of that situation. But when you're like calming yourself, your system down and you're able to sit with it and you're, you're able to say, Oh, I feel a sensation. It's painful. And maybe you don't need to do anything about it at that moment. Maybe it's okay. You know, it's a signal you can choose to ignore or, or to, to to pay heed depending on the situation. And I think that's very powerful because it, it increases the, you know, your, I guess your 
ability to act in an uncompelled way. Like it increases your agency in a way of how you want to interact with and deal with life uh, in a way that I, I think is, you know, we don't often give ourselves that, that agency. And, and to me, that's been a very um, important skill to develop. Yeah. Agency. That's, that's a perfect, uh, perfect thing to, to wrap on. Um, Justin, I, I know I and, and team and, and many village founders have, have really uh, admired, appreciated, and learned from a lot of the writings that you've, uh, you, you've done on mental health and, uh, and just speaking a lot about it. And so I want to say thank you for, for doing that for the broader sort of for the village community and for the broader founder community. And thank you for, for sharing some, uh, some private uh, you know, learnings and lessons with us, uh, with us today on a Saturday. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. And thanks to everybody. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.